GM everyone, this is Martin Yu. Welcome or welcome back to another episode of the show. My guest today is Justin Mazel. You can find him on Twitter at Justin Mazel. That's two Z's and two L's. He is the co-founder and chief product officer at Proof. Through his art, he has brought to life the awesome 10K PFP collection that many have come to know and love called Moonbirds. He is an incredible graphic designer and illustrator who, fun fact, used to create his own Dungeons and Dragons type board games as a kid. But more on that later on. Had a ton of fun chatting with Justin. We cover a wide variety of topics, starting with his personal background and then moving on to the stuff he's currently working on at Proof, such as Moonbird Mythics. We also talk about delivering value for holders, his creative process, his thoughts on AI art and much more. Excited to share this one with you today. So without further ado, please enjoy my convo with Justin Mazel. Justin, it was amazing seeing you in Miami. How you been? I've been doing well. It was great seeing you as well. It was like uh, that that time was fun. I'd never done Art Basel before, so that was super fun. And then obviously we hadn't done the format of the uh, like the day lounge before. So I was I was very unsure what it was going to be like. I totally thought it was like, we're just going to bring laptops in a coffee shop and just like set up for the day. And like people kind of come in and out and that'll sort of be the experience. But it ended up being a, a busy time and ended up being a lot, which was great. It was amazing. And <laughs> I actually Thanks. preferred that format just because of how much like you could have a meaningful interactions in a setting where, you know, you know, you didn't have like five cocktails. You know what I mean? That was exactly uh, the, the change. Yeah. And the only part was, was, uh, it was challenging, like going from one place to another with all the traffic that's been like, you know, from South beach to Winwood, but oh overall God, like yeah. great experience. Yeah. That was, uh, we did that as a response to, you know, a lot of people had a lot of fun from what we heard at the, at the proof of Moonbirds. We got a lot of, you know, positive feedback on just having a good time. But um, some of the most critical feedback that we really wanted to lean into, which was a lot of people felt like the party vibe is really fun, um, but it was really hard to get to know people and to like actually take the time and meet them and have conversations. And so it was like, you know, a band is fun. It's nice to go to a concert, um, but it's really nice to see these people that you've known in the community and actually like putting, you know, faces to handles and all that kind of stuff. And so that was kind of a big request was like, we need either, if you want to do a concert, at least make the space and the time for people to get there early where their lights are on, where people can see each other, they could read each other's, you know, name tags and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, yeah, that was the real decision behind it was wanting to create more of an environment where it's like, Hey, you've probably talked with these people before. It's, you probably want to meet these people. I thought we kick off this podcast with a comic book kind of origin story. Ooh. I was curious to know what got you into graphic art in the first place. And when did you figure out that you wanted to be an artist? Like, what was that aha moment like? Yeah. Oh man. That's, that's a fun one. So, uh, let's see. I grew up with my brother, my brother, Ryan, uh, we're only 17 months apart. So super close in age, single mother. Um, we basically just kept ourselves busy cause she was, you know, often working uh, a couple jobs. We kept ourselves busy really by just kind of like building our own worlds. And so that was, you know, through, through a number of different mediums, Legos, we were, we were super, super big on, we, we loved movies, um, super interested in them, but we had this rule in my house where you weren't allowed to have the TV on, on Monday, Wednesday, 
uh, or Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday you could, but only after school. So like we weren't allowed to watch TV um, and we didn't have cable either. So there wasn't really a lot to watch unless you love daytime television. Um, and so what we would do is like most of the time we would draw, we would like take time and like sketch out worlds and create storylines. And so um, we never got Dungeons and Dragons uh, because uh, <laughs> when I was growing up, it was a very like conservative religious environment. And so there was like a, you know, it was the rumor of like, oh, D&D is like, like the gateway to the devil. Um, so we weren't really <laughs> allowed to get D and D, um, but we did kind of make our own tabletop games and we had like friends at school who were super into it, that and Warhammer 40 K. And so we would like kind of ask them a lot of questions like, Oh, how do those games play? What do you do? And so having never played, we just got all this like secondhand information on how you play these games. And so my brother and I, and we had my best friend, Sean, who lived across the street, we, who actually moved from California to Florida with us. So we were super close to this other family. Like we would basically build these games where we would have like entire monster manuals full of all the enemies you'd encounter. We had item books of just like, here are all like the different items you could pick up and, you know, forging weapons and upgrading them and like how your characters so would cool. go through. Yeah. We had like this huge world map. My brother, was always the map builder. He was so good at drawing maps and like they had like names and little descriptions. And so we got really into that. Um, and so we just would create a lot of art. You know, I grew up doodling and everything, every notebook, every test, if I finished early. Um, and you know, while we didn't necessarily come from uh, a lot of means where I did grow up, my mom uh, had put us into this, uh, this arts elementary school that it was like a magnet school and it was called Edison Park Elementary in Fort Myers, Florida. And, um, it was just this really cool school that, um, was very big on arts. So it's like visual arts. We took dance, uh, we took theater, uh, we took music and choir and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so what was really neat about that experience is really, you know, as a young kid trying out all of these different mediums and, and trying to see which ones really stuck. And so, you know, for me, it was like, love art classes. Art was really fun. I, I, I loved art as an expression to be able to like, you know, uh, for me, when, when you're young, the biggest part of it is like finding the things you love. Like for me, I loved video games. I didn't get to play them often, but I loved them. And so my first expressions were taking source material like, you know, Legend of Zelda or Mario and like redrawing mm. them in like a different style and reimagining them, drawing new levels and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then also I got really into theater. Uh, my brother and I both were in like basically all growing up theater theater and art were like our two things. Like we did a lot of musical theater. We did a lot of arts kind of stuff like that. And I so, could see you yeah. in like an improv class. Oh, kind we of did a lot role. of improv. I was in a traveling <laughs> improv group for a bit, which was a lot of fun. I guess the, the important part of any uh, passion and finding is just trying so many different things yeah. and then eventually some medium sticks. That's right. So why did graphic art speak to you more than all these different things. Cause obviously you did some improv, you, yep. uh, you, you were into theater and, and maybe a bit of music too. So yep. why was it graphic art? I did play in a lot of really bad bands. Um, <laughs> Basically, I went to college uh, under the assumption that I was actually going to do uh, more of the film kind of route. Um, that was that was really what I was passionate about. Um, it, it was kind of a, a double thing. I was like, I like film. I also really like um, kind of like philosophy and world religions, kind of stuff like that. And I was like, I don't know, maybe I'll be a pastor. Maybe I'll be like a filmmaker. Maybe I'll do both. There was a video series back in the day by this uh, this preacher named Rob Bell that was called Numa, and I was like, oh man, I love this idea of like video mediums and teaching through these things. 
And so that was something I was going to lean into. And, and like graphic arts had really kind of like faded for me. I wasn't really doing much with them in college, but I was back in the day. Like, you know, I, I was like designing like sermon series of the church that I grew up in. And that was like, you know, how I did my graphic designs back when like design was really grungy. And so there's a lot of like textures mm-hmm. and rough things, which is always very helpful when you want to make like a really edgy brand for a church. Um, <laughs> and so then I ended up like going to the film program at where I went to school at university of central Florida. Um, and there was a teacher who was talking about, um, her tenure in film and like the industry. And she talked about, you know, kind of like living in LA and pursuing film, uh, for the better part of like 15 years. And, and really, you know, for her, like she never was able to pursue it full time. And so she really got more into the teaching side of the house. But for me, I was like, ah, I don't love the idea of like not being able to actually do film because film is so hard. Like it's like, you need to like have Mm -hmm. all these connections and it's not a one person show more often than not. And there's a lot more financial means that are required in order to really get into this. And so the entire time that I was kind of like, thinking about leaving, you know, film program, I was like, I don't know, are there other ways I can explore story? And so I started working on some like abstract narrative, I I guess you would call them collages, basically, and taking like Photoshop and a bootleg copy of Photoshop, taking uh, Photoshop and sort of like morphing like scenes and visuals. And so I created these little stories and there's two of them that I created. Uh, One of them was called uh, The Passenger and the Architect. And the other one was like, do you remember when this world was ours? And so there were both these like stories in my head that I couldn't tell through film. So I like chose this other abstract medium to tell them and they had little characters characters and like a little narrative. And so that one mm-hmm. thing led to another that kind of got pushed around the internet back in the days of like Behance when that was kind of like the place to be. Mm-hmm. And, um, I started working locally at a, uh, well, I was at the time I was a pastor and then I was working locally for, uh, cause they don't pay very well when you're a pastor, um, for this, this local magazine in town doing design work. And, uh, I had gotten an internship there. It was like a, an unpaid internship. And so I was just going in just to learn. I had this amazing teacher named Jeremy Kennedy, um, who really like helped with everything. Like he, like he would be like, okay, like, can you illustrate, you know, this article I remember, uh, life of Pi was out and Jan Martel was like the author they were highlighting. And that was like the first brief mm-hmm. that I had. He's like, can you do an illustration of Jan for this, the, this story? And I was like, okay, what, uh, how do, how do I do it? Do I scan like an illustration? He's like, well, you could just use illustrator. And I was like, what is illustrator? And he's like, oh my gosh, you don't know what that is. Okay. Uh, so like I, I learned on the job there, which was really amazing. Uh, and I say on the job, it, this was an unpaid internship. Uh, but you know, it, it was still really awesome to have a teacher who invested in me. who took the time to teach me about typography, illustration, layout. We learned about the web, how to use like InDesign layout magazines. And so all of this journey began really in sort of like an unpaid internship at a magazine, learning how this kind of stuff works. And the cool thing about, I think, magazine design and editorial stuff is like, it is such a composite of all these pieces of design kind of all put together. Mm-hmm. And then from there, it was just like a big old playground to like, well, what areas of design do I like? Yeah, it's interesting because when I look at your art, like there's so much that is reminiscent of that Dungeons and Dragons kind of grungy feel, but it's also <laughs> super clean in Thank a sense you. that like whenever you design your, I was kind of like stalking a bit your, uh, your portfolio mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on, I, I believe it was on, it wasn't on Behance. Was it on Dribble? To, yeah. Dribble. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and, and I think you have such a, a color palette that is recognizable. Like you mm. use a lot of those, uh, pinkish colors and, yeah. and you know, almost like cy- cyberpunk yep. kind of purples and blues. Actually, I wanted to switch gears a bit and I sure. wanted to ask you, since you mentioned Illustrator, 
with Moonbirds, I think you mentioned somewhere that you used Figma to design them. Why are you using Figma as a design tool and perhaps illustration tool over Photoshop or Illustrator? Are there specific reasons? Mm, yes. So um, basically, I use Figma to uh, put the pieces together. Uh, Figma has this really amazing feature uh, called components, which have things called variants, where it's like you can swap out different instances. Um, but I didn't use them to create the actual source art. Um, I, I mean, mm. you can you can create pixel art in Figma, but it would not be a very fun program to do point by point. I actually started the collection in Illustrator because I would just use the grid system and I just like would drop a square. But then I found this other program called Asprite, A-S-E-P-R-I-T-E, um, that's actually a native pixel art tool uh, that allows you to kind of do like brush strokes and to do, you know, all of your like Bezier kind of stuff if you want to do it. More organic line and it, it computes a lot better, like what circles would look like and you can set them at pixel perfect amounts. Um, so Asprite was actually where I ended up doing um, the majority of the lifting of the actual source artwork. And then every single asset was then exported from Asprite, brought into Figma as a component, which then became a variant instance. Very nice. Uh, I mean, that's super interesting to me because I have a girlfriend that's also an illustrator. And mm -hmm. when she got into pixel art, like she, she realized how many ways you could go at it. Like oh, you yeah. could design pixel art in Photoshop, you could use Illustrator, but like what was the, the way that was the most efficient. And I think, you know, when, when you get into a tool like Asprite, like we we're saying, where it can natively design in pixel form is just so much easier instead of going square by square. Oh Yeah. And it's a new thing to learn. Like I will say like the lift, if you've used like, you know, like illustrator, the lift probably isn't that bad, but it is always tough. Like saying, Oh, this is a new program. I got to learn it shortcuts the way it thinks about things. There are some things that it handles differently. But like what I will say though, is I actually do love illustrating Figma, just not pixels. Um, like for example, some of the new artwork you'll see coming out for Grails three, um, that we've kind of teased on Twitter, um, where it's like, you know, all that really light illustrative, uh, stuff that looks very dimensional. It's kind of cut into the background. That stuff was done in Figma because I actually think Figma's handle of, uh, gradients, lighting and dimension, mm. like all the shadows and stuff is actually second to none. It is so good and so smooth at handling like soft bloom lighting effects and like, like dramatic lighting and shadows that I actually prefer it over any other program to illustrate in. Yeah. Your, your glow effects that you use for the flyers and whatnot. I'm guessing that's Figma too. It is. Yeah. Figma's uh, like, oh, the blue so lighting nice. gradients are so good in Figma. What was the, uh, the biggest, cause I remember when we talked IRL, uh, you, you mentioned that one of the biggest challenges when designing the Moonbirds was to take off as much as you can, making the, the Moonbird very simple, but also very recognizable mm -hmm. from like afar. What was that process like? And how did you think about making the Moonbird recognizable, but also fit into that profile picture format? Because, you know, we, I'm sure you had to think about the fact that, you know, it, it's not only like looking at it blown up uh, right. as like a, a wall art, but also looking at it as like a very small icon on Twitter. Yeah, that is the toughest thing is considering like the mediums by which they'll appear. And so it's like art intent and like where it actually shows up is really hard. Most like most things look really good when you design them at a very large scale, when they're blown up large scale. But then when you reduce them, you lose so much fidelity that it looks really crunchy. 
And so for me, it's like, I think part of it is preference. Like I'm somebody that doesn't really prefer like, like really complex PFPs. I really like super simple, very clean PFPs that sort of, um, they just scale really well. And so, you know, when we were designing Moonbirds, I mean, we went through so many iterations of what this owl should look like. And some of them, you know, had like 80 by 80 pixels. And then, you know, we brought it down. Oh, can we make it a little smaller? Then we was like 64 by 64. And then where we ended up was like that 42 by 42 was sort of like the process of like shrink down, shrink down, shrink down. And so, um, for me, it's, it's a world that I know pretty well. Like, um, if you've seen some of my like previous illustration work, I mean, I, I work a lot with grid systems where it's like a lot of geometry, a lot of simple shapes that I use to try and convey like dimension and like some kind of spatial abstractions. I, I'm used to constraints and I actually really love them. I think when you have a, 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 like an open palette and you can do anything with it to me, it's almost like, I don't know, like there's not enough that like forces me to come up with creative solutions. So it's like, I mean, with enough pixels, you can make a picture perfect fidelity image. I mean, you know, when you zoom into a photograph, that's, you know, 8,000 by 8,000, when you get down to it, they're all just a bunch of pixels. And so right. the idea of reducing and reducing and reducing, it means you no longer have, you know, uh, 2000 grid points to do the nose in a, in a portrait. Now you only have three. How might you show both lighting and shadow and surface material with only three pixels? And so as we were building Moonbirds, um, you know, we kept reducing, but we wanted to reduce enough where we could still show some dimension. That was one area that we really wanted in the collection. What I really wanted, which is like, I want Moonbirds to have a base material and I want every base material to have both a highlight color and a shadow color. So that means we need to have like a focal point where like the light is shining from this area. There's a background here. It reaches around dimensionally. And sometimes that means if it's a reflective material, it needs a rim light, like gold has like this other shine on where the shadow is. And then there's like a, a shine on that side. So it's like, I, I wanted all of the constraints while still being able to create a visual design system that allowed me to play with dimension and shadow. And so that was kind of the jumping off point from there. And then the other side of it was like with the number of traits we had and how different the Moonbirds were, I really wanted this collection to feel iconic and part of doing that is making sure that you're not creating 2000 possible traits that these moonbirds can have, but rather like a very, a very limited trait pool that is like, you know, when you see them and it's like, oh, cool. And we already thought about like how sub parliaments would work. And we're like, we want people to rally around traits. And so if all the traits have such a low frequency where there's only like, you know, oh, you'll only see this trait, you know, four times and this other one, five times, this other one, six times, right. like those numbers didn't feel like matched in what we wanted to see. So we were like, okay, what's like the least amount that we want a trait to occur? Like maybe it's like 50 times because we want like at least 50 people to try and rally around this item or this trait. Um, so there was just a lot of like working through that, which meant that we had a lot of items we created and then cut them out. Cause it was like, ah, that's too many. Let's take this mm -hmm. one out. And then we had some other ones that were just too weird. And it was sort of like, speaking of iconic, we wanted the Moonbirds collection to just feel more like, like, like nothing too crazy or like lore driven or just like bizarre. That is more of a mythics thing. And so it was just sort of like, let's, let's create a collection that, that has objects that you might recognize. Um, but then also like, I think the weirdest trait in Moonbirds is probably the Crescent Talisman. Mm -hmm. Um, cause it's like, it, you know, nobody, it's like a Crescent Talisman is not a normal thing that somebody just has on their bookshelf. Um, but I still really loved it. And I fought to keep that one in.
Yeah, I think there's so much architecture and, and thought that goes behind, you know, projects like Moonbirds and obviously other, other projects too. And I love to hear about the process of putting all of that together. Mm -hmm. And I, I also love the idea that you started out with a PFP that had this pixelated style because it's kind of like a timeless testament to mm -hmm. what that brand will be over time. And, you know, the pixelated style, it just, it reminds you so much of nostalgia of like, you know, growing up with you know, Nintendo 64 or whatever. Yeah. So that has already gone full circle. And now you see how people love that vintage style. So, you know, it's, it's always going to be there based on that. Like you're moving into Moonbird Mythics now, mm -hmm. which has way more detail and just feels like way crazier in, in, mm -hmm. in the swings that you're going to be doing. So how has that process been developing that IP and perhaps like, um, you know, just, just going more wild with that whole style? Yeah. It's been really fun. You know, when we created Moonbirds, like I said, there was a lot of curation, a lot of simplifying uh, a lot of these things. And to be honest, you know, when we really, when we created Moonbirds, a, a really big, you know, kind of lore aspect wasn't really uh, one of the swings we were taking at the time, you know, on staff, it was just like four people. So it was like, none of us were uh, experts at crafting these things. And none of us really had sort of the bandwidth to put the cycles into it, even though it's something that, that we really love. Um, I just, it wasn't really a top priority at that point. And so, you know, since then, since the expansion of kind of the project, you know, with oddities and then the upcoming mythics, uh, we really saw this as a really exciting opportunity with the illustrators, you know, that we've been working with their full time with us. That's Colin and Luke, um, who are really, who've done all the principal art that you've been seeing come out. Like, you know, their backgrounds are rooted in like, you know, game stuff, uh, you know, like LucasArts. And then also like, you know, Colin having done work in a lot of films, like the idea of, of building and expanding on something was just like, well, there's, it would be so silly to explain this and not actually have a reason or a world behind it. And, and mm. oddities was the first where we, we said, we really need to solve for this because the entire idea behind oddities was like, you have moon birds and you have these pellets that they're spitting up, but these pellets are now like these little companions in a way. And so what we didn't want to do when we created oddities was like, we don't want to release a PFP collection and then right on the back of it, then release another PFP collection. Like oddities to us were like, you know, celebration of art, but also like, they're just so weird and little companion-y that it's like, you could use it as a PFP if you decided to, but we really love the idea of them feeling like a little friend of your moon bird. And so they're like together. Mm. Um, and so <laughs> we have this like image that I always see in my head of just like this oddity riding on the back of a moonbird right there. And so it's like once, once like that was kind of, you know, the idea of like a companion, it was sort of like, well, I'm not just going to like release a companion and not have a reason for it. So that's where we really started tracing the roots of like, how does this work? What are these things? You know, the fact is it's a pellet, but it's a pellet that's animated. Like there's got to be some sort of magic that's kind of happening here or some sort of reason why this is going on. And so that's really kind of let us kind of go down the rabbit hole as we've paved the way as well for mythics in like, how does all of this connect? Where does all of this go? And like, where has it been before? And, and like, like, what's the story that took place to even bring the Moonbirds to where they are? And so it's been fun, you know, in a lot of ways, retroactively to go back to some of the Moonbirds collection and then also look to the future and what we have now and how to put together a more cohesive story. And then, you know, having a good team and a core group that we can kind of bounce those ideas off of and, and sort of, you know, like a writer's room format of like pitching some of these ideas and where this goes and then finding little experiences that we're building to start putting down the seeds and the roots of like where that story is kind of going for us. How is it getting other artists on the team to design these PFPs? Like when, when you're getting other creatives, um, you know, do you play a, a role of art direction or do you design with them collectively? 
Yeah. So right now, up to this point, it's been art directing mythics. All of the all of the creation that you've seen so far has been Luke and Colin. Um, they are uh, <laughs> they are so good in the style that they're working in. Like it was like, you know, again, I'm a constrained person. So it's like I never had to think about what's the perspective on like, you know, this moon bird. Is it like angled up in the right way? Is there a right yeah. like horizon line, a right terminal for all these things? Like but Luke and Colin do have that in their brain and they and they go back and forth on that and kind of how they create it. And we actually just got some of the like Wacoms in the office to like start working on a lot of that stuff. So I've been doing my rounds and actually getting to draw some of the stuff now. And that's been really fun. Uh, but none of the stuff nice. that we've shared yet has been the stuff that I've drawn. Uh, but I am really excited to roll up my sleeves and be drawing now because it like, it feels so good to get to like input into that. But the coolest thing is that like, both Colin and Luke are such like, they're not just doers. They're not just like, you know, just great artists with great hands in terms of brain power, like the ideas they come up with and some of the like amazing, the compelling, and even the silly ideas have been really fun to see. Um, like, I think we showed like, um, that mythic that has, um, the, the bird in the eye. So it's like a wooden mythic right. with like a little bird that's poking out of its eye. Um, like all of these ideas come from the team's brain of just like thinking through weird ideas and they start out in sketches and we like kind of go through and we look at all the sketches and we're like, Oh, maybe there's something there. Oh, okay. Let's pull from that. And, and because mythics is so, uh, is, is so much of a bigger collection. And because we do want it to feel really visually distinct from Moonbirds, that's kind of enabled us to take some bigger swings and be a little weirder, be a little more out there with some of those kind of approaches, and then just be okay with like some of the weirder stuff that's going on with them. I have to ask you, um, I've seen the the kind of like live recording that you guys have put out and I've seen the previews of the Moonbirds. They, they look amazing, the mythics. Um, is there any sort of alpha you can give us that we haven't heard yet? Or you, you have to, we have to wait on that. I have to ask you the hard question. No, <laughs> no, I know it's, it's a good question. Um, what I can say, who, let's see, I'm trying to think of a fun one right now. Cause obviously there's a lot of stuff I know that when we're working on them, <laughs> I think one of the things that I think is going to be really fun about mythics is as we consider proof as a larger ecosystem and some of the places that we want to continue to play, one of the biggest things that's really important to us is to, is to look at art and to look at creators and those that are like doing things in the space and figuring out, you know, ways to honor them and kind of their contribution to the space. And when we think about mythics, these really are sort of like spirit ancestors or guardians uh, for the moon birds. And they exist in like an entirely different plane of existence. And so bringing them forth is really sort of like summoning them onto the Moonbird's plane of existence. And they exist like at a time kind of outside of time. And so one of the things that we really like about Moonbirds is like, or the mythics, they're, they're these sort of characters that are able to think in terms of like time, not in a linear space, but rather like they collect art and they collect artifacts and they are not just like casual observers of culture and creation as it goes, but they, they, they do also kind of stoke the fires of creativity. And so as we build these mythics, I think you're going to see some really interesting uh, riffs on potentially uh, other art that exists in other spaces, as well as art that's, you know, from web three and really figuring out how to honor and, and really, you you know, build something unique out of all of the wild and diverse visual language systems that exist in web three and beyond in art. Um, and so we've had a lot of fun thinking about what this, what this looks like from a very basic standpoint of like, even the bases of the moon birds, how do we start thinking about, and I know we shared that one that looked like a, 
there's gold and we also showed, you know, like the ghost ones and all that kind of stuff. Those are definitely ones that exist. I mean, they exist in like every collection, um, but we really want to challenge ourselves when it comes to like the bases that we're building to come up with some that haven't been seen before some, not just the material, but also like how it's being made. Um, what I it love looks the one like. with like the, the snake that goes around. Yes. The, yeah. The body. We have, we have yeah. a lot of those weird animal ones that are sort of like pulling from that stuff. And, and I think the thing that a lot of people saw in that and, and some of the, the critical feedback, which I think is super fair, was like, oh, like I really loved when you shared, you know, the original mythics, they felt so much more like, like there was a lot going on and you know, there was, they were really alive and there was all kinds of stuff there. And then these feel really simple. And the whole point of the art update was to talk about our approach to building this collection, which is really to start out this collection by building a very, very strong foundation that we are like totally set on. So we approach this project by basically saying this is a bigger collection. We need to think about how it's going to look all zoomed out. And that's one thing that we do for, you know, the collections that we've built. You really have to zoom out, look at the whole thing. And how do we make sure that even in its most simplistic form, it feels really beautiful that the base rigging or the puppet as, as the team calls it of like the first one, even without any additional traits feels really compelling. It feels really attractive. You know, there's going to be mythics that are crazy and that are busier and have multiple traits. You know, the idea isn't for the entire collection to only have, you know, your base body and then one trait. We, we definitely want to get a little wild with those swings, but it's also very important for us to build a collection that even if it's stripped down, even if it doesn't have, you know, every single trait slot filled of like nine different things, it still feels beautiful. It still feels recognizable and it still feels like unique with the whole collection. And so there's been a lot of effort and energy put into how these bases feel unique, how they feel, uh, the, the body positions feel different. Um, and so I think you're going to see a collection at least my, my hope and intention is that you see a collection that doesn't need to fall back on saying, oh, well, of course it's a beautiful collection because the epic ones are really beautiful. We want to make sure that the mythics, even a base nude mythic feels really legendary in a way. It feels really beautiful. I love what you did with the Moonbirds, where there were some nude ones that distinctively you could really see like, okay, I, could, I can recognize this Moonbird. It doesn't have to have like a wizard hat or whatnot. Right. Like it can just be exactly this this bird without anything on it. And um, I love that you're adopting that approach with the mythics as well. It was, it was nice with the moon birds to do that because the other side of it was we knew that, you know, we had to bake in uh, the proof collective background. And so um, one of the constraints mm. that we had with moon birds was like, well, when it gets to the point that we can start doing more custom stuff, we move these things in chain. How do we make sure that like, it still looks like it, it holds its shape and its form and you still recognize it as a moonbird. And that's the challenge as we're now we're getting into this age of customization of the moonbirds with the proof collective background with the starlight when we just released and the X copy, how do we still retain that form with all the constraints that are already there, but this is still a moonbird at the end of the day. How do you see collabs evolving in the space? Because you just mentioned, you know, the on-chain birds and, and the fact that now we can change our backgrounds and customize mm -hmm. our moonbirds. I feel like a lot of times uh, leading up to this uh, era, you know, in the past two years or something, I feel like everyone was really building in silos, but there's so many different opportunities to merge communities. And with Moonbird's background, you guys definitely hit on that aspect. There's, there's an aspect of social signaling at play, mm -hmm. you know, much like people want to wear certain fashion brands to express, right. express who they are. It's the ability to modify your Moonbird to share more of the communities or artists you're into, how do you see that evolving? Yeah, that's, I love that question. Um, at Proof, we think a lot about the idea of like identity 
and who people are in the space and what represents them. You know, when we think about Web3, like people get to sort of curate and choose how much of themselves they share with the broader community. And I think that that could be a really good thing. You know, it's not bad that some people are anon. And it's not bad that some people want to be doxxed and share their name or their location. Like everybody should be able to choose and opt in to like what version of themselves they want to put forward. So we ask that question a lot, you know, especially as we've been building the collector profiles, like how do you make sure that what you choose to share with the world is up to you and you can be represented in a very specific sort of way. And so, you know, as we think about collaborations, there is a bit of a way where it's like, maybe there should be a way where you can flex like different parts of yourself, the things that you're proud of, the things, you know, the art that you've collected or the communities that you're a part of, mm-hmm. you know, it's not our belief that like moon, if you're a moon bird is a zero sum game and that's all you are. You should only ever be your moon bird. If you ever change your PFP, if you ever do something like that, we're taking a back seat. Like, I think that, you know, the nature of web three is such that most people we've talked to and interviewed, they're, you know, active in a number of different communities and they, and they love each one for very specific reasons. And we really do want to lean into that and recognize that like, if you're a part of Moonbirds, there's a very big chance that it's like, this is one part of you. Mm. And there are other parts of you. Some of them are in real life. Some of them are in other online communities. Some of them are in your passions outside of work. And all of those things are awesome. And you should be able to celebrate those things. And so when it came to thinking about, you know, backgrounds or, or the general term that we've been using is customizations, because, because of course... Now that we have access to every layer and every trait within the Moonbird, there's really a lot that we can do now. As we think about customizations and as we think about collaborations, we do think a lot about the idea of like, of course, there are ways we can celebrate people for in-network, in-ecosystem things like, you know, I have a Moonbird and an oddity or, you know, I... I don't know. Uh, we just did the hoot bot this week. I got a hundred hoots in a week. Um, there, there are definitely ways that we could lean into doing fun little gamification things. But the other side of that is absolutely thinking about ways that we can do partnerships that aren't just like, you know, Hey, we did this and now you can buy this merch externally, uh, that has, you know, your moon bird on it. And that's okay to do too. But I love the idea that now it's like your verified, in-chain version of your NFT can dynamically change to represent some of these other pieces of yourself or these other communities that you're really excited to be a part of. And there's a balance there because we're going to have to curate it really, uh, we do need to be very thoughtful about it. And I always, uh, mm. I always kind of bring it back as we're ideating on this stuff is like, we created the Moonbirds to be iconic, to be, to sort of like last the test of time with their simplicity, to make sure it's recognizable when it's really scaled down. I don't want to create like so much crazy diversity or take all the rails off that like they get really crazy and really busy and potentially really ugly. And then it's just like, I don't even remember what this collection was. Yeah, exactly. So like, there's a balance Like customization to the point where, uh, you know, you have a pizza on the Moonbirds face and you can't even see the PFP anymore. That's right. And it's also important for us to balance all of this stuff with, um, we always talk about the idea of like, you know, some people uh, purchase their Moonbird with rarity being important to them. And they they want to make sure they can maintain their, you know, their place in there. And so it's it's really been... um, important for us to ensure that we're not messing with the actual metadata and the rarity there to change something specifically. And so I think the way that you're going to see a lot of our approach to these things is taking already established pieces of your Moonbird and doing transformations or doing, you know, uh, potentially, you know, cosmetic changes to things that already exist. And then the really nice thing about all of that is the nesting contract ensures that 
once you do go to sell that moon bird and you do unnest it, it reverts right back to its default state. Mm. Um, so there's not like a version of it that you're selling, like a version that won't be able to be, you know, in existence because for some of these things, like the X copy background, you'd need to hold the X copy in your wallet with your moon bird in order to activate it. And so it would be unfair to put that up for sale on a place like OpenSea and it had that X copy background and somebody thought that's the version of the moon bird they're getting and they buy it only right. to realize that's not what they got. I think the perfect segue here is the Hootbot. You guys launched this um, earlier this week. Can you tell us a bit more about Hoots and what you <laughs> aim to achieve with that? Yes. So the Hootbot for us is an exploration in conversation is what I would call it. The way that I think about a lot of the way that we communicate in this space, whether it's you know Discord or whether it's Twitter, is like a lot is going on all the time. And as we kind of talked about before, where it's like some people are a part of, you know, uh, three to four communities that they're super active in. Some people, it's like 10 to 15. Some people, I remember we did that survey about how many uh, discords people were in, and there was a lot that were in 30 plus. Um, wild. A lot of servers going on for a lot of people, which is, which is, you know, exciting, but also like, oh my goodness, you need to like probably mm -hmm. mute that server pretty much immediately. And I do too. If I join a server, I'm immediately like, I got to suppress everything here. Um, so the idea is really, you know, when there's a, a large volume of things going on, curation and ultimately quality is really important. And so figuring out ways to basically talk about, Hey, this is really good content, or this was really good. This was really helpful, um, is, is really important. And so the idea here was like, how, how do we lean into, you know, what already exists out here? And we've seen good models that like, I know that on-chain monkey has one with like bananas that they've been doing where it's like, how do you lean into the idea of highlighting something uh, that feels like it's deserving of saying, Hey, I want to give you some props for this. And obviously mm -hmm. like, I mean, a very simple version of this is Reddit. Reddit has an upvoting and a downvoting system. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite things is going on Reddit and like, you know, flicking through kind of, you know, my, my feed there. And then, uh, if there's something that I like, I'll probably click into the comments and I'll just start reading what are the top comments on it. And a lot of times it's funny. A lot of times, uh, you know, mm -hmm. in certain subreddits, it's informative stuff. And it, but, but I really love that because what it's doing is it's saying, Hey, there's a lot of noise and that's okay. How do we find the signal here? And the signal in a lot of these communities is really up to the community to decide for some of the funny ones. It's funny content, uh, for, I'm, I'm, I'm like looking at a nature one. It's like, hi, like, what is this bug is one of my favorites. And I'm always like, what is that bug? And it's like, I go into the most upvoted <laughs> comment. It's what the bug is. And so it's, it's a way for us uh, to really start experimenting with the idea of, of curating where you need to go by, by showing you, Hey, the community has decided that this is worthy of attention or wants to bring emphasis to something like this. And so you could jump into, you know, you could sign in and go to the Hoots channel, look at those highly upvoted ones or uphooted ones, and you could click on it and you could go to the discord and then you could follow it down if you want for a few and see, Hey, where did the conversation go from here? What happened? These are just small uh, experiments that we're running to learn a bit more about the nature of connection, social conversation, how this works and how we might start thinking about better positioning people to not just be overwhelmed with the deluge of messages they may have missed within the last few hours that they weren't able to be at their computer or with Discord open. Do you think there's any uh, possibility afterwards that, because you mentioned Reddit, like, is there going to be ways to see a person's rank and see how much they've contributed? Uh, all the information is being logged. And so uh, I would say, yeah, there's, there's really 
there's not a lot that we couldn't do, you know, so long as we keep track of everything and really just kind of look at, you know, what's the, what, what does this look like? You know, when you give a hoot, you get a hoot to be able to give and you can do 25 in a day. But yeah, I mean, it's like, to, it's a small mechanic. It's a small, you know, gamified mechanic. But at the end of the day, you know, the way that I see all of these small experiences that we launch, as long as we're intentional about how we build them, it's like, these are all levers and pulleys that we can look to when it comes to how we're creating a lot of the platform that we're looking to build here. And so I think, um, I think that there's absolutely more that can be expanded here. I think there's ways it'll probably be able to be improved. There's ways we can look for, you know, obviously just like farming it for certain things. Um, But I'm excited because again, this is to me is a very simple first step that I think has larger implications. And it's, it's kind of the way I feel about like backgrounds, backgrounds in and of themselves Mm -hmm. are a small thing. It's small to only have, you know, three right now to be able to choose from. But it's what the tech paves the way for where I think uh, things get really interesting. It's when you pair, you know, simple tech first step with like where this can go. Um, and I'm hoping yeah. that, you know, all of these experiences that we're doing, especially like in the social space of like looking at how Hootbot can do things. These are first steps that we want to look to and see what's the impact here, because no matter what you build, you might have a specific intent, but that doesn't change what the actual impact is. So is this going to go well? Are we going to have people that are going to browse this way? Is it going to fizzle? Are people not going to find it helpful? Like all these are things that we're looking at real time feedback. We're asking people to how we can improve it. We've already got a, a slew of amazing recommendations for how we could start doing some of those things, making it more obvious for people, how many they have showing more images embedded in there. And so we definitely know we've, uh, we've got a really good group of people that are using it. And so now it's just a matter of improving and iterating on what we're already putting out there. Yeah. And that's the best feedback you could get is when the community actually uses it and in real time tells you, well, maybe this is not that good. Maybe this would be better or actually this, we love it. Speaking about community, one of our um, fellow proof members, always Max, uh, has a specific question that he wanted me to ask. He said, what do you think is the ideal balance between the value of the proof collective compared to the Moonbirds, Mythics Mm -hmm. and Oddities? As someone that is deeply connected to the community, I often hear about how each of these different groups bicker with each other and that's normal. It's <laughs> kind of like sibling rivalry. How do you think um, the various groups within the entire proof ecosystem could feed it to a whole more than the sum of its parts? Yeah, that's, that's a... So thank you, Max, for that question. Ooh, that is a great question. Oh, wow. Well, there are a couple things that I think are really important to note, which is, you know, obviously the relative size of these things does matter. So I think, you know, when we launched the collective first, only having a thousand people in that group was actually, uh, it was a real gift because it was like, it was so easy for people to get to know each other. When we launched Jan first, we did the discord. And then even before anything had really come out, it was like people were already talking, they're already sharing, they're talking about their lives and what they Mm. did and what they're collecting. And so, you know, when we positioned it for us, this was like, we want to create a hardcore collectors group of NFT collectors. And even myself, I wasn't even a hardcore NFT collector. I was in it, you know, as, because I knew design and Kevin and I were working on this, but he was really the one who was doing a lot of the teaching on that side. So I was just excited to learn from people that did this. And I was like, oh, at that time it was still modern finance or something. That's right. Modern finance. And then we had proof as like a, a side one that was kind of forming out of there. And it was sort of like, Oh yeah, well like these is getting a lot more listens. And I guess people are interested in this stuff. We're also, you know, coming out of a pandemic where a lot of people had some time on their hands and they wanted to learn on the internet about this stuff. And so the, the important thing that I always think about is it's harder because I think we knew immediately when it came to like 
the collective, there was sort of like, we want to build a small, tight community of hardcore NFT collectors. And there was this really interesting discussion that happened just this week. And I think it was two nights ago where folks were talking about the idea of like, I know that was the pitch, but I actually wasn't a hardcore NFT collector. And there are other people who are like, oh yeah, I'd, I'd never actually gotten one before Kevin. I just knew Kevin Rose and I knew he was doing this. So mm-hmm. I just kind of jumped on in. And so it ended up being this really interesting thing of, yes, of course, there are super experienced collectors that have been around and they have, you know, punks and they have apes. And they've been around since the genesis of all this kind of stuff. But we also had a lot of people too that were just learning and we're just kind of taking it all in. And some of those people have jumped in and become, you know, hardcore collectors, if you will. And some of those people have really just been kind of like watching the proof ecosystem and kind of staying there. And then you got other people that have been branching out, trying other things as well. So when it comes to the collective, it's like, this is sort of our group that we see as like, we want to put the emphasis of research, of building small tight knit community in there, um, of really uh, getting people access to artists and creators, uh, whether it's through, you know, uh, a Grails or another upcoming collection, like the idea behind how the Proof Collective operates and sort of what they do um, has been really easy to sort of like delineate where it is. The other thing I will say too is, you know, we really did see this as like, this is that OG group that first came here. And so when it comes to access and opportunity, we want to continue to provide the collective with kind of, kind of the first eating right there where it's like, Hey, the collective has been here and they've been here from the beginning. Um, and we want to make sure that we can reward them for being early on this project, for being early believers and for being a part of this community. And so it's always been important to us to ensure whatever we build, the collective has a seat at the table. They're always able to, uh, take part in sort of that product delivery process with us. And then when you get to Moonbirds, now you're talking about like a a 10K collection here, much bigger community, but there were certain goals that we knew when it came to Moonbirds, we really wanted to embody. And, And for example, one of those was that small community thing was really important to us. We've seen that the smaller communities tend to, to really get people that get to know one another. You're not as afraid Mm -hmm. to like reach out, say who you are, learn about who the next person is. Um, and so this was actually part of the onus behind our traits, not being too varied. When I talked before about like, I want enough people to have a trait where a small group could form out of that. And these people could get to know one another and they could treat each other like, like they're a group. And so that was really important for us. And then the other thing that was really important was like, as we build out this like kind of larger collection, we need to figure out a way, at least in my opinion, to ensure that connections become really intentional. And now that we're at like 10,000 plus the 1,000 of the collective, this is where you start getting into the platform area of being like, okay, we've got people. They're a part of the story. They're a part of the space. How do we start creating experiences for them where they can decide how they're going to be known? This goes back to identity. They've got a collector profile. You know, we've, we've already announced that we're working on artist profiles. So how does a collector connect with an artist? What does that look like? What is the nature of being informed about these people? And so what I will say about Moonbirds, which has been really nice, is like this mass volume of people has made it such that some of the product experimentation and delivery and, and really looking into how community can work at scale gets really compelling because now again, we can build, we can release, we can get people using it immediately. We can get people into flows like the in-chain flow and immediately have users that are clicking through it, giving us feedback. The collector profile where you're choosing how do you want to be known in the space? What do you want to show and what do you want to be known for? All of these pieces of identity are now a big part of like where we continue to see these things happening. But we also know that our initial assumption was the Moonbirds collection or, or the folks who are going to be a part of it may not be as like hardcore NFT collectors. 
But we've seen that we have a ton of people who are super experienced, not only at collecting, but also in building. And so this yeah. has really been a big part of us needing to say, great, well, we need to respond then. We need to create more opportunities for them to be able to have access to information. And so that's where we started the on-ramp of like all the research material that our research team is creating and needs to find the way to the moon birds after it's gone to the collective. And so now we, we've got this process for like, let's give them information. And then this is now the moon birds Dow side of it, where it's like the amount of people here who, when we launched this project came to us, like, well, I want to do this, or I want to build this. How can we, you know, officially do this? It's like, oh my God, we have like this crazy creative group of people who want to build things, who want to like actually take part in all of this stuff. How do we arm them and equip them and honestly finance them to be able to do these initiatives? And so this is a big part of, you know, where we see the Moonbirds Dow going and also helping out to say, hey, listen, you know, we didn't really lean into the universe building side of this project. We didn't give you this huge book of lore about where the story is going and what you can do with it. But now I love the idea that people who are passionate about specific pieces of it could jump in and be like, I really want to develop this side. And the DAO gets to decide and they get to vote on like, this is where we want to put, you know, our emphasis and energy. But then I also love that we as a team can come beside them and use our skills to actually say, great, this is what you're trying to do. We want you to be successful. How can we make you successful? Do you need design help? Awesome. I can roll up my sleeves and help out with that. You need connections with, you know, X, Y, and Z in the space to be able to build this project. Excellent. Let us be able to help you with these things. So it goes to me further than just financing that side of it. It's in order to help the builders do these things. So you have these communities, mm -hmm. I think, that are different for like what they're leveraging and what they're doing. Um, I understand that there can be tension between attention of what, like, like, where's the team focusing on? Where are we putting our effort and energy? I do think, however, there is a degree to which I do want to see the overlap of these communities where it makes sense, where the collective maybe has access to a lot of these artists, where they're, they're holders of a lot of this art, where they're partaking in a lot of these new collections that are coming out there. How do we connect them with the artists? But then also how do we allow some of these collective members who have been around a bit, who have been a part and exposed to this kind of art to teach in some cases, to be a part of the larger conversation and to be able to have some of the moonbirds, particularly who aspire to be a part of the collective, really get to learn to meet and rub shoulders with some of these people. And so I think that there's a way where we can do better, even as product builders at ensuring that there's more harmony that exists here, that there's more access and opportunity for people to meet and mingle and learn from each other. My hope is that it doesn't feel like there's conflict that exists between these groups because we are deeply passionate about them and the various things that we are building for these communities. One thing you mentioned, and I want to reiterate here, perhaps in different words, is that a lot of the value comes in the intangibles that are not necessarily spoken out loud, right? Like the, the most value I've gotten from the Proof Collective, like it, it is the, the connections that you get there. It's the people you get to talk to. And since it's a, such a small, tight-knit group of people that are just a thousand inside that Discord, mm -hmm. it feels a lot less noisy to reach out to yeah. someone and say, hey, you know, like you're building this. I can help you out with that. I, I'm building this. Can Do you know someone or are you someone that can help me with that? I think that's a lot of the value that accrues to the collective, the Moonbirds, Mythics. Like in my mind, it's just, it's all about the community and the people mm -hmm. that are there. Yeah. And I, but I think it's also on us, I should say, to like, to ensure that, you know, make it a community that's desirable to be a part of. And I think that that, that really mm -hmm. does have to come on us. And yes, of course, it's how people show up in the discord and it's, it's the way we talk to each other. But I also think like we bear responsibility for ensuring this project 
um, is also valuable to the people that there are tangible aspects of it as well and that we deliver those tangibles. And so I think that, you know, what I really want to do and one of the areas that we as a team have talked a lot about is like we even need just like persistence of information. Like we need central repositories of what we're building, what we have built and where this is all going. And I think we could do better to really give people that information because ultimately when people are looking at projects, they need information. They need to know, right. does this project appeal to me? Is this something I'm going to be excited about? Because I'm a big believer that there are projects that are just not for everyone and they're not supposed to be for everyone, but there probably is a project out there that you will be passionate about. And mm -hmm. so I will say as much as I, I, I love the intangibles and the connections made. And I think that, I mean, honestly, it's hard to argue that when you make those connections, that's not the most valuable part of, of it. I mean, that's meeting my wife is the most valuable part of going to college. But at the end of the day, <laughs> we also want to have those pieces um, where, where when you're talking about these communities, there are those tangibles where you know that this team is dedicated and excited to deliver value for their, their community. Fair point. I love that. Um, I want to be wary of your time. I think we have about three minutes left. I want to ask you a final question yeah. uh, about a topic that is very much top of mind. As a graphic artist, I'm curious to know your thoughts on AI. Uh, and where it's going. Cause I think that right now we're seeing so much improvement in that space and we're seeing all the potential that that technology can bring. What are your thoughts on that? And, and how do you see this uh, evolving over time? Yeah, I, I'm a believer in AI. I think it's really interesting. Um, I think it's a space to watch. You know, when I think about it, I draw with computers and computers make perfect lines for me. I'm not like taking out a ruler and drawing from like point to point and like, that's it. I think that whenever a new tool, and this is the way I think about AI, to me, AI is a tool. That is what it is. And there's still thinking, there's still prompting that needs to go into it. There's still curation and choosing. There's source inputs. There's a lot that goes into creating a good AI image. And if you don't believe me, you know, anybody can start creating AI and guess what? The yeah, first piece of AI works. It's not great. Like, like it takes a while to really get it to feel like something that aesthetically loses a lot of that like weirder artifacting of like when it's a clear tell that it's AI, uh, of making something that looks more stylized. Like, like there's just, there's a lot that has to go into it. And so to me, I think the argument and the fight against AI feels probably similar to what it was like when we had digital photography emerging. And then you had all these traditional photographers that were like, well, that, that doesn't make sense. I I had to shoot this at the golden hour. You can't just like manipulate it to make it look like it's the golden hour. You need to get out there. And unless you really know how to do that, that's, that, right. that's not, that's not real photography. And well, I just actually think Claire Silver, uh, I think on the recent podcast she did with Sam, that's what she mentioned. She said that like painters back then when the camera was first invented, they were pushing back and saying that that was like the, the lazy artist way yeah. of like capturing a moment, but that's and we always totally do that. Different. We're always so worried about it. We're always like, Oh, well, this is going to, this is going to kill all of this. And like, this won't exist. But to me, it's like, there is a certain inevitability with all of it where it's like, guess what? AI art is going to get so good that we're going to have to deal with it and we're going to have to figure out how to work with it or we can try and, you know, punch down and work against it and just say it's not real. But it's like, I don't know. I don't get to define what real art is. There's art I don't jive with, but that doesn't make it any less real for like what was being done. And I think the only thing I will say right now, and, and the reason why I'm cautious with AI art today is the ethical inputs into it are really hard to kind of deal with. You know, it's like for the most part, if it's just an input into inspiration, I think they're like, yeah, it's probably fine. But I've also seen a lot of artists that really feel like they had the specific style 
And then somebody input something and they made a piece that was like this close to their original artwork. And like, they're really mm. frustrated about that. And I could fully understand like, that just doesn't feel good. Um, of course, you know, there, there's like a whole bunch of legal implications. Like, could it actually stand up in a court of law? Like to me, it's not about that. It's like, how do we create ethical models? Um, even if it was like, is there an AI engine where people are, imp are like, like opting into it and saying like, yeah, use all of it. Like to me, my entire body of work, I'd probably be like, as long as I didn't have to like sell something and I lost the rights to it. Like I'd probably be like, yeah, why not? Like, go ahead, use it as an input. Cause I would do the same with any of my work, learn from it. You know, I don't mind sharing tips and tricks and, you know, industry secrets of how I build, like go ahead and use it. It's going to be different. Inspiration will change the way the final output looks. And so I think there's, there's a lot of conversations we still need to have around, you know, ethical models for it. Mm -hmm. uh, but personally, I, I, I just think there's a, a degree to which I think it's exciting. And I think that if we can really think about, um, an ethical way to build some of these things, you know, with using them as sources of inspiration, but not lifting work and digital theft, or even just figuring out a way to like opt out to just say, Hey, I don't want this utilized in that way. Um, it could be, you know, worth having those conversations. So to me, I think it's really promising. I think it's exciting. And the other thing I will say that I've loved is like seeing people who, uh, are in the web three space that didn't consider themselves like artists experimenting and doing cool new things with them. Cause I'm just like, that's awesome. Look at you getting wild and crazy. Like, I love yeah. that. I love to see creation. Somebody that wouldn't have otherwise, um, dived in and created something because they were afraid of how it might be perceived by people or, you know, they, they just didn't feel confident in their skills. Now they can, you know, they can dabble with this new technology to create something out of nothing. And that, I think that's, so powerful. And it is, I see this like, um, so I do a lot of photography and videography and like now the smartphones that like uh, people have in their everyday life films and takes photos of things in such a great way that I'm like, how do, why do I have like this big digital camera? Right. But it's always going to be useful in different contexts. And it's the same thing with AI. Maybe it's not for everyone. Maybe not everyone's going to like it, mm -hmm. but it's going to enable the people that really love it to create a whole new genre where it's not just about creating something out of nothing, but maybe a bit more of that art direction where maybe you have a great story you want to tell, yes. but you just don't know how to illustrate it. Right. Yep. You made me think of this one other thing. I remember I was listening to a spaces and someone was talking about how, they were saying that, you know, it's so lifeless that it removes, um, it removes what they see as the necessary part of like learning how to draw first. Like they were like, you need to learn how to draw. And I'm not saying you have to go to art school, but if you can go to art school, you should. And if you really want to be, if you really want to create art, you should first learn the basics and then, you know, and only then can you do that. And to me, <laughs> I just think like, man, so many incredible artists, myself included, like, didn't learn the basics. Uh, I, I don't say myself included like an incredible artist, more like <laughs> I meant as an artist, myself included, a lot of people didn't go the traditional route. I never learned how to draw. I've never done a figure study. I've never like done a color theory course. I don't even know the words in color theory. I just know I like the way certain colors look. And mm. I'm not a traditionally educated artist or designer in any way. And so to me, I will say, if we, we said you have to do this first and then do that, I think we would miss out on some incredible creators. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a way in which you can start with something like AI and then get curious about some of the stuff. Like I said, I've never taken an art class 
class, but you better believe once I got into design and I started learning, I was like, I need to know who are the designers that have created this stuff. And I started learning more foundational stuff about them. I started learning a bit about, you know, oh, okay, so this is how you create these things. And I never taken a figure design class, but I still have looked at now books and been like, oh, okay, so that that's what those proportions look like. Like all of these things, I think when we create a path that we feel like somebody needs to take, I think we can unintentionally gatekeep incredible creators who can do awesome things. And the fact is some people are just going to jump in and their taste and their talent is just natural. And it's always been Mm -hmm. up here, but they haven't had a way to bring it out of themselves and they've never known how they can do it. Maybe they didn't believe in themselves enough. Maybe they didn't have access and opportunity to go to art school. Maybe they grew up in a family where art was always really looked down on. And so they never really pursued it. But now this is going to open incredible doors and allow people to do things they never thought they could do before. And that alone, I think is compelling and it's exciting. And we should celebrate what opening those doors can look like for brand new creators. Well, Justin, I want to take a moment to celebrate what you and uh, what Kevin have built at Proof and Moonbird so far. I think uh, you guys are doing a great job and talking about how basically like as a little kid, you were designing your own (laughs) games, like drawing your Dungeons and Dragons kind of games to seeing what you're creating now with Moonbirds and with the Mythics. It's just very exciting to hear and it's inspirational as well. So thank you for, um, for taking the time today to talk about all of this stuff. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate being here. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please consider leaving a rating or review on Apple, Spotify, or any other platform you're listening on. Your feedback is always super helpful. So if you take 13 to 35 seconds of your time to share some thoughts with me, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you again for listening and until next time.